We have seen David let God down with catastrophic sinning. Uh, His sinning has dramatically impacted his uh, ability to rule. He's no longer giving justice to the oppressed. He's not ruling in righteousness. His son Absalom has returned from exile and there has not been a shred of repentance. In fact, we've really seen some arrogance ultimately on Absalom's part in his return to Jerusalem. And what we're going to look at tonight, I believe in the life of David, helps us consider the question, uh, what do you do when you let God down? That's where David is at right now and how you handle letting God down, that you have sinned and now what are you going to do? And that ultimately will be our focus tonight. Our side focus, as it has also been throughout our series, is we've seen Christ in these images. Now, at this point, you would probably suppose that since David is now on the other side of sinning, you would think, well, we're not going to see a lot of pictures of Christ anymore because this is almost would be a negative reflection, right? But you will be surprised at the heavy connections we're going to see uh, in regards to Christ. And it would really be two sermons to observe both. So I won't do that, but we will glancingly make these observations along the way that you see uh, foreshadowing of Christ in what David experiences, the choices David makes, and how he ultimately handles when he let God down, though Christ did not let God down And yet the parallels of their lives are fascinating. So it puts us in in 2 Samuel chapter 15 tonight. 2 Samuel 15, it opens with Absalom basically starting a conspiracy against his father. Obviously it was not good for Absalom to return to Jerusalem and certainly not good for him to return without repentance. The first thing you see Absalom do in chapter 15 is he starts running around acting like he's royalty. He rides around in a chariot. He's got horses. He has 50 men coming along with him. He's acting like a king. Uh, In fact, it is very parallel to the warning that Samuel gave in 1 Samuel 8 and verse 11 about what a king would do. Absalom starts looking like that as he rides around. You can imagine as we were told about his long flowing locks that he had cut once a year that weighed weighed, down a total of five pounds. So here he is, you know, hair blowing in the breeze as he rides in his chariot, 50 men running around with him as he goes throughout Jerusalem and throughout Israel. Not only that, as people come to Jerusalem to see the king and to have the king be able to give a judgment regarding disputes, you have Absalom intercepting them and listening to their case and saying, well, if I were judge, here's what I would do. I would grant you what you're looking for, and I would certainly give you justice with the implication that if you go to the king, you're not going to find that justice. Just so you see that in 3,000 years, politics hasn't changed. Tell the people what they want to hear. And that's what Absalom does. You want to grab the power of the people, tell them, oh, if I were in charge, here's what I would do. 
would be so much better if I were your king. And that's what Absalom does is I should be your judge and I would give you the justice that you are ultimately looking for. And finally, also being the people pleasing uh, Absalom who's trying to usurp the throne, when people would come to Absalom and they would begin to pay him homage, he would stop them from getting on their knee and just give them a hug and embrace them and give them a kiss on the cheek. Kind of like, you know, no, no, we're, we're equals here. We're, we, you don't need to do that. No need to show me deference. No need to pay me any homage. I'm with you. And what a difference it would be if I were king as he rides around in his chariot with his horses and with his men. And it tells us in the process of doing this, over verse 7 says a, a four-year span that this happens. The end of verse 6 says that he stole the hearts of the people. That he's winning people over. Four years of just, oh, if I were king. Oh, if I were in charge. You know, I would, I would be a, a better judge for you than what you have. And, and oh no, don't treat me any differently. I'm nothing special. And so you have that going on for years that you have then him stealing the hearts of the people and he even steals David's trusted counselor, Ahithophel. He will be important in a few chapters. We won't really pay attention to him tonight, but just to know that even one of his close counselors, a close advisor of his, even turns against him and now sides with Absalom. And so what you have is really this conspiracy becoming complete to such a degree that we're told in in verse 7 that what he's going to basically do now is he is going to go to Hebron to worship. David, I'm going to go to Hebron to worship. Can I, how, can I do that? And, sure, you can go ahead and do that. Little does he know that what Absalom is about to do is basically usurp the throne. As he goes then to Hebron, Absalom has secret messengers, verse 10, all throughout the tribes of Israel. And he says, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, I want you to proclaim throughout all of the land, Absalom is king. And so that's exactly what happens. Absalom takes 200 men with him who were invited guests. They didn't know that they were a part of this whole thing that was going down. But there they go with, with, with him there. And Absalom then goes about doing that. And it says at the end of verse 12, the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So he makes his proclamation, no, I am the king. And everybody follows along with that. In doing that, a messenger comes to David in verse 13 and just simply says, you've lost all the people. The hearts of the people are with Absalom and they are not with you. And so David tells all of his servants who were in Jerusalem, we need to evacuate. It's time to go because he knows that if Solomon has all the people, if he's got the army and he's got the hearts of the people, all that Absalom has to do is then make his invasion into Jerusalem and he can just simply take over, wipe out David and wipe out anybody who is on David's side. And so David says, here's what we need to do. We need to get out of here. And that's what you see him in the process of doing is he gathers those who 
would be with him, the servants in verse 15, and they begin to make their, their way out. He leaves ten concubines behind. People are often troubled by that in verse 16. Why is he leaving ten of his concubines behind? But it's a symbolic gesture that what David is doing is not giving up the throne by leaving something in place. It's almost as if to say, uh, this is still my kingship. And though I'm leaving Jerusalem and leaving the palace, I'm not just giving it over to Absalom that in David's mind, this is a temporary thing and he is going to leave for a time. And so he leaves them behind as that symbol. And in doing this, it is interesting that the next paragraph really starts talking about all the people who begin to pass by David. There are so many who want to join them. And what's notable is that a great many of them are from Felicia. Uh, that's the, the people who are listed when you read there in verse 18. All of those names, these are Philistines. If you remember, David spent a lot of time in Philistia. And when David becomes king, it appears that many of the Philistines from those various cities came and became part of Israel. And so they begin to go with David and David says, no, no, you stay here. You just got here. Basically, you just are enjoying Jerusalem and enjoying the throne and you just stay here. And the words that are said to him are one of the the powerful themes. There's two big themes in this. And this is one of them. If you notice it in verse 21, says, as I answered the king, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. Here's the definition of being a true follower of the King. Where they say to David, no, we're not going to stay in Jerusalem. Wherever you go, we'll go. And if it means life, fine. And if it means death, fine. And there's already there some symbolism to Christ and His disciples where we see that come out of His disciples on a number of occasions. You might remember you have in the Gospel of John when when Jesus says He's going to go to Jerusalem and His disciples are saying, you can't do that. They're going to kill you. Finally, Thomas says, well, let's go with Him and die with Him. (laughs) It's like, well, if He's going to go, we're going to go. Peter proves it in the garden when the betrayal happens and the arrest Peter pulls out a sword. He's ready to go. He's going to go with his Savior to the death. You're seeing that kind of devotion here. That here it is Gentiles who are proclaiming, wherever you go, we'll go. And whatever you say, we're with you. And if that means to our death, we will absolutely do that. And so it is a picture of what it looks like to follow the King. This is what Jesus is talking about when he goes around saying, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to forsake everything and follow me. This is natural. That was not something strange for the king to say, hey, if you're with me, you go with me. That's why Jesus says those words. And here, even as David tries to dissuade his servants and his his followers from coming with him, they say, no, no, we're going to go with you no matter what. And so in verse 22, he says, all right, basically come along then. And notice the geography that is now noted. It goes out of its way to ring some bells for you. In verse 23, 
it says everyone is weeping as the people pass by and the king then crosses the brook Kidron. And in verse 30, we are told he ascends to the Mount of Olives. How about that? What a picture is already being foreshadowed right here is that the rejection of the king by Israel with now notice not even using David's name there in verse 30 in verse 23, but the king crossing the Burk Kidron and Jerusalem was set that way to go to the Mount of Olives that we read about in John 18. You cross the Kidron Valley. And to go up into the Mount of Olives. And David walks that path. David leaves the city of Jerusalem. And notice everybody is wailing. Remember, Jesus used that and said, Hey, everybody don't wail for me. Wail for yourselves. Because of the judgment that's coming. Here the land is wailing for David as he crosses the Kidron Valley. And he then makes his ascent up into the the Mount of Olives. Fascinating that you are getting a foreshadowing of just... As Israel rejected the king and the path he took when Jesus is rejected and he now walks the same path to the place of his betrayal and his arrest and ultimately his crucifixion. He's walking the very same path. He's showing he's the son of David. He's showing his connection to the true David of Israel and is truly the Messiah that the scriptures were pointing to. Now, one of the things that helps us to see another parallel here, it, we need to ask kind of a question, I think, to be able to see it. And I think it's an important question to consider because God has enthroned David. David is the rightful king. He belongs in Jerusalem. He belongs as king. That is indisputable. That is without question. And so the question that I think is implied here Why doesn't David fight for the kingship? Why doesn't David say, I'm king and I'm staying right here. God made me king and this is where I belong. And Jerusalem is a place where God said to be and the Ark of the Covenant is here. Why not draw the line in the sand and just say, this is where I belong and I'm not leaving. I think it's something to consider. Because I think the answer that is provided is one of really the big messages of this chapter. What happens in the midst of verses 23 to 30 is you'll notice in verse 24, the priests come out and they are bearing the Ark of the Covenant and they offer sacrifices to God. And what David says next is absolutely shocking because as they carry the Ark out, The king tells them in verse 25 to take the ark back to Jerusalem. You're not going to drag the ark of God around with me as I make my way out. I'm not going to do that. And what I think you see already is a picture of how David is not going to manipulate God. Think about in our study of 1st and 2nd Samuel, when you took the ark places, you were attempting to make God do something. Remember 1st Samuel chapter 4. Hey, the Philistines are against us and they get whipped. Oh, the reason why we got whipped is because we didn't have the ark of the covenant. Let's take the ark of the covenant out into battle, then we'll win. And then they get whipped again and the Philistines take the ark and and then God has to whip the Philistines himself and bring the ark back. 
And notice David's not like, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring that ark with me so I can get God to do what I want to do. He says, no. The presence of God belongs here in Jerusalem. Not going to use this as some kind of tool to bend God's will to my will or to make God do what I want him to do. In fact, the words of what he says is is absolutely stunning. Verse 25, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. And let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. What I want you to see is David places himself at the mercy of God and simply decides he will trust the outcome to God. If I have found favor in God's sight, then this is all going to work out fine. Eventually he'll bring me back and I will be in the presence of God again. I don't need to drag the ark with me. I don't need to try to bend God's arm to do my will. If I found favor, this will all go fine. But then notice what he's also willing to do. If I haven't found favor with God, then let him do what he's going to do. The words that he says there, and he says, Behold, here I am. Let him do what he thinks is good by me. Whatever he wants. What absolute humility. I mean, you just have to be amazed that what David does is is not, I'm going to fight for the city. I'm going to fight to be king. I'm going to be in charge. This is my rightful place. I'm going to hold on to this with all of my might. He just simply says, you know what? If God wants me here, he'll bring me here. And if I haven't found favor with God, then let him do to me what he sees fit. But he is absolutely devoted to God, has great faith in God, and is unwilling to seize this moment as if it belongs to him. But he is entrusting God to carry out and unfold these plans. This again is a mirror of Christ who does not come to Jerusalem and say, you're not getting me out of here because I'm the real king and I created you people. You don't want me? Fine. And he walks out of Jerusalem. He walks across the Kidron Valley. And he goes up to the Mount of Olives and he prays, Not my will, but your will be done. And allows his enemies to come and arrest him, put him on trial, and kill him. And this is the same picture of humility and of submission and of faith in God to carry out the will of God through seemingly unbelievable circumstances. We would read this and say, how can this be right for this to happen to David? David should be on the throne. And yet God is at work and David understands that David is willing to accept that. In fact, it is even more interesting to underscore the connection to Christ yet once more. A messenger comes to David in verse 31 right here in the midst of this paragraph. 
and says Ahithophel has gone to Absalom, which is then the informing of the betrayal that is complete. Is that your closest companion, your advisor that you had, he's not even on your side. He has gone to Absalom's side. And here he is in the Mount of Olives getting the news of this betrayal. And notice what he does. David in verse 31, he prays. He prays to God. O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into Foolishness. And so you are seeing these mere images of David and Christ happening here. And you are seeing pictures of humility and submission. And what we are seeing with David is, is so powerful that in all that is going on in his life and what is happening to him because of his sin, he's accepting. And chapter 16 underscores that idea even stronger of what that message is, of what we do when we have let God down. Two sad statements are made really in chapter 16. Two paragraphs that describe really this cascade of problems that have continued. In chapter 16, we read about Zeba. Verse 1, who is the servant of Mephibosheth. Do you remember him? And do you remember Mephibosheth? Remember earlier back in, in this account, we saw that David wanted to do good to the house of Saul, to the house of Jonathan. Is there anybody left in, in Saul's house to do good by? Yes, there is the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. He's crippled. And remember, Mephibosheth has nothing to offer. You would think that he would be killed by the new king because that's what you do in ancient Near Eastern times is you kill off anybody of the prior lineage so that there's no threat to the throne. And rather than doing evil by Mephibosheth, chef he brings him into his palace and says you're going to eat at my table all the rest of your days and enjoy all the blessings of being at the king's table well Ziba here now comes to David and you will notice in verse 1 that he brings just a truckload of resources essentially for David here's some food here's what you need as you're leaving Jerusalem and David asks well where's your master Where's Mephibosheth? And the answer that, that Ziba gives is simply, he stayed in Jerusalem hoping to become king again. With all of the overthrow that's going on and the turmoil that's happening, the reason why he didn't come is because he's hoping to be established as king again. Now, I won't do a whole lot here because a little later that's going to be thrown into question about that. But I want you to imagine being David for a moment here at this, this, this scene here. Where someone that you have shown absolute grace and mercy to, all that you've done is good. You've poured out blessings on this man and what you hear in return is disloyalty. No, he's not with you. He's not coming. He's hoping to seize the opportunity to be king. And in fact, the paragraph ends there in verse 4 by saying that he now turns everything that had been given to Mephibosheth over to Ziba. We won't say a whole lot about that here. Just hold that in your head for a few weeks from now. But really sad to think that Mephibosheth would not be loyal for all that David had done. 
the disloyalty gets worse in in verse 5. Here is this man named Shimei, and we're told here that he came, end of verse 5, and he cursed continually. He is part of the house of the family of Saul. Verse 6, he's throwing stones at David and all of David's servants and all the people and all the mighty men. And listen to what Shimei says in verse 7. Shimei said, as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. So just imagine, here's this guy shouting that out while he's throwing rocks. <laughs> Notice what Abishai says in verse 9. Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over there and take off his head. You know, this is, Think about the scene. This is the king, and you are throwing rocks, throwing dirt, laying out curses, calling out to him, oh, you're a murderer, you're getting what you deserve, throwing all this dirt in the air, and Abishai says, let me just, you know, let's, let's just be done with him. <laughs> let's just be done with him. Listen to what David says. <clears throat> Verse 10. What have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah, if if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done this? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. And I'll add on there just that next verse in verse 13 that says he didn't just stand there and do this. The whole journey, Shimei is throwing dirt, throwing rocks and cursing the king as he goes. Do you notice that David said for this wrong that has been done to me? If you think about what Shimei says for a moment, he doesn't say anything that's right. Well, listen to what Shimei says and think about it. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul. Who of Saul's house has David killed? Nobody. No, in fact, all that have died has been against David's will. Joab's been doing things like that, but not David. David has not been the one to instruct that. David was not the one that wanted Ishbosheth killed. He had made terms of peace with him. Furthermore, when it says, uh, see your evil that is on you for, for you are a man of, of, of blood. Again, what, is, what has David done to deserve this kind of slander? What I want you to see is even what Shimei says, though it is false, David does not stand up and say, you're a liar, Shimei, Uh, go get him. You know, (laughs) never mind, just I'm not going to put up with the cursing and the rock throwing. 
But now you're spewing lies. And David doesn't say, I'm done with you. I'm going to get rid of you for all of that. Instead, what David says is, I'm just going to accept the consequences. Did you see how he answered that? It is a, a stunning answer that David gives. For David to say, it may be that the Lord has told Shimei to curse me. Well, there's an interesting way to look at it. I don't know that we would look at things that way and go, well, it might be God wanting this negative thing to happen in my life. Maybe this has been done because this is God's will in this. In fact, going a little bit further. When he says there, leave him alone, verse 11, and let him curse for the Lord has told him to do it. He's just going to accept the consequences. You notice that David doesn't say this is a, this is un, uh, unfair or this isn't right. I don't deserve this. What he's saying is a bunch of lies. It's all untrue. Now, what David says is, you know what? I've sinned against God and I deserve the consequences for what I've done. You see him being very accepting of this circumstance. Something that is even wrong coming out of the mouth of Shimei. Never mind the fact, does Shimei have the right to throw rocks and dirt at David and his men, even if he was right? No. But David is going, I will accept the consequences. And finally, notice what David does in verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look down on the wrong done to me and repay me with good. Why is David not going to do anything? Because he's going to trust God. That God will see that David is being wronged. He's being falsely accused. Underscore. (laughs) And he's going to let God handle it. God will do good to me for the wrong they've done. They're wronging me. They have not done what's right. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to not respond in kind. But I'm going to do good. Let's then get to the application and talk about the big picture here. Really the big point. When I let God down, just like David has catastrophically let God down, I want you to see that his response is a willingness to accept the consequences for sins. I think that is a huge message that's being described here. It is something that is setting David apart in this scene. Is his willingness to accept the consequences. He accepts what's coming to him, even though it is a terrible circumstance, and still trusts God. He is losing everything. I mean, think about what is happening. This is an unwinding of everything. David is going back into the wilderness with with his trusted men. It's almost as if we've reversed back to 1 Samuel and we're starting all over. David's lost it all. He's lost the throne. He's lost his rule. He's lost his influence. Hardly anybody is with him anymore. And he is leaving Jerusalem. And so everything has been thrown upside down in his life. Because of his sin, 
And he accepts it. He accepts it. Even down to Shimei, who is absolutely wronging him, spewing all kinds of lying curses. You killed all of Saul's house. No, I didn't. Absolutely not. And yet even at that, David says, leave him alone. I deserve this. This may be the Lord's doing. These are the consequences that ought to be coming to me for what I've done. I think it is so important to see what was said was wrong. He accepted it. What he experienced wasn't right. It was unjust. Throwing rocks at him, throwing dirt at him, chasing him all the way out of Jerusalem. Is he not having a bad enough day that his son has completely stolen the nation away from him? The one that he has shown grace to rather than having executed, which should have happened to Absalom for his murder. And now you have this guy coming along and just kind of throwing the the lemon juice in the wound here, just making it worse. Even in what he experiences, he accepted it. And he doesn't blame God. You know, he's not leaving Jerusalem going, what's the matter with you, God? Why, why are you letting this happen? I thought you made promises to me that I was supposed to be king. Shouldn't I be on the throne? Why don't you deal with these people? He just accepts it. I think this is such an important picture that is given to us that, friends, we cannot avoid the consequences of sin. And David really understands that right here. David understands that we cannot avoid the consequences for our sin and is ready to accept the suffering and ready to accept the life difficulties that are going to come because of what he's done. He's going to reap what he's sown. And that's already unfolding right now. And he understands that. And I think that is an important picture because this is why God gives us his laws. Uh, Why does God give us all of this? Why does he try to teach us what to do and what not to do? Except he's trying to keep us from having that happen in our lives. God tells us over and over again, your sin is going to bring you suffering. That's why good parents give rules to their kids is I don't want you to have bad things happen to you. That's why God gives us all these rules. I'm trying to keep you from this kind of pain. I'm trying to keep you from this kind of suffering in your life. And he accepts that. In fact, I would like to make the strong point here that that's really what true repentance does. If we are truly repentant about our sins, if we are really honest in accepting our sin, then that also means we're willing to accept the consequences for what we've done. If we're not willing to accept the consequences, then consider, do you think we're really repentant? Now, sometimes we use God as a, oh, I'm sorry. Now, please get rid of all these consequences because it's going to be really bad. And that's not repentance. Repentance comes with humility before God and says, I deserve whatever it is. Boy, the heart of David right here to just say this could be from God. This could be from God. Uh, This this is this is could be God's doing. And so leave him alone. 
and let him curse me. I deserve those curses. Even though he's saying things that are false, I still deserve these consequences. You see, this is part of the heart of David. When we speak of this concept of David being a man after God's own heart, it's not because he's flawless and blameless and sinless. But a heart like this that says, I blew it and I'm not trying to get out of it. Accept the consequences. This is such an important concept that we see. Is that if we are truly repentant before God, if we are truly humbling ourselves before God, then we are willing to accept the consequences, accept what we have done, and deal with those things and be fine with that. To be fine with that. We deserve it. We did wrong. And the collateral damage and consequences that come from that we will willingly accept. And I think then what's important with that number two very quickly is that then we learn from that. We've talked quite a few times in these lessons is that we don't waste our suffering. One important thing to do is that when we are dealing with the consequences of our sins and we are going through suffering and we have pain because of what we've done, let's learn from that. And sometimes that is exactly what we need. It it hurts. But sometimes what we need is the consequences of our sins to cause us to hit the spiritual bottom so hard that it wakes us up. And David's here. I mean, David is here. He's just lost everything. And it's not going to get much better. (laughs) There's going to be a while before things reverse around again. And he simply hits bottom and says, I understand what I've done. When we let God down, number one, we accept the consequences for our sins. Number two, we learn from the failure. And I think number three, then, is we just don't resist the suffering. I'm just fascinated that not only does David not stay in his palace, And he doesn't just stay in Jerusalem. And he doesn't try to take the ark with him. He doesn't try to gather a whole army and go to war against Absalom. He doesn't try to defend the throne. He doesn't even try to kill this liar who's throwing rocks at him. He just accepts the suffering. He says, okay, God's teaching me something right now. And it's the most important thing we can do is really look to God and say, God, you're teaching me. And to truly trust in the words that David says in verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look down on the wrong that's been done to me and repay me good. Now, unfortunately, when we go through the consequences of our sins, there's a lot of things that may be said and done that are unfair. Some things will be done that aren't right. David just says, you know what? God sees that. And maybe God will pay you for good because you didn't retaliate. You just accepted your sin. You humbly accepted your consequences. You learned from your mistakes. And you didn't try to resist the suffering. And what's really fascinating to me is Jesus doesn't sin, so there's not that learning part. But think about even though it wasn't his sins, 
He doesn't resist the suffering. And everybody's lying about Him. And He still goes to the cross for our sin. He's such the perfect model. He did nothing wrong and had the same response that you see David having right here. That's the heart that God wants us to have. When we let God down, to be open, humble, and accept that we deserve consequences, there will be pain for our actions, and do good in the process of that, that God may eventually do good with us. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know we let you down so much. We fail you in so many ways. And Lord, we know you block consequences. We, We know that we don't receive all that we deserve. We know the wages of sin is death. And we know that what we do experience is ultimately for our learning And ultimately, so that we would spiritually grow towards you. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to learn from our sins. Help us to accept our suffering. And may it be a catalyst for us to be able to see your mercy and goodness in the days ahead. Help us to learn that your ways are always right. That there are reasons for your laws. And that everything you do is for our good. Lord, we pray for a heart like David that simply submits to you. He doesn't grab onto the things of this world. He doesn't care about who he is. He just simply cares about you. God, give us those hearts. We pray for forgiveness for as often as we failed you. And Lord, we pray that we would use our suffering and use the pain that we experience because of what we've done to be better servants of yours. In Jesus' name, amen.